Dang, dang. Two, three.
Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, hello, hello. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. And welcome to the episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles, and today I'm finally going to be getting around to talking about the two Beatles documentaries that every other podcast, their mum and their dog, have been talking about over the last few months. Yes, folks, welcome back to another film review episode of Paul or Nothing, where we are going to be exploring the Beatles' Let It Be documentary film from 1970, directed by Michael Lindsay Hogg, as well as the upcoming Get Back slash Let It Be documentary remake, directed by Peter Jackson for Disney, which, after many, many, many delays at the time of recording, has been pushed back to August 27th, 2020. Now, I'm going to be changing things up with the next couple of episodes uh, as I'm working on Flowers in the Dirt, and I'm going to be taking a leaf out of my esteemed colleague, mentor, friend and scapegoat, Anthony Rotuno's book, Uh, On his podcast, Glass Onion, on John Lennon, he divides a lot of the lengthy interviews into two parts. For him, I'm sure it's more about scheduling, but for me, it just means I'm going to be able to get some content out for you as soon as possible. So, yeah, uh, the next couple of massive interviews that I've recorded, I'm going to be releasing out in two parts. And I'm also going to be taking another bit of advice directly from Anthony. Shout out to Mr. Rotuno. Uh, I'm going to be trying to get to the point a little bit quicker. Let's get to the interview before the 10-minute mark, eh? So, yeah, please stick around for part two of this Let It Be slash Get Back discussion. And, yeah, I hope you, I hope you enjoy. But, obviously, before we can do any of that, let's quickly settle the matter of the housekeeping. If you want to get in contact with the show, if you want to say hi or drop me a warning or even a criticism... Drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Follow us on our Twitter, which is at McCartneypod. Check out the blog, which is www.paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com, where you can see two brand new articles that I've just put out. One on multi-part McCartney songs, you know, a lot of his two-parters, as well as my single-disc edition of Egypt Station. Go and check that out. Thank you very much. Also, join us on our Facebook page, simply by typing in Paul McCartney Pod or Paul or Nothing. If you want to help out the show right now, really quickly, and with minimal effort, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Podbean, Podomatic, Stitcher, whatever platform you use. It really helps boost us up and gives us that exposure we need through the mysterious algorithms. And hey, if you could write something nice as well, I'd really appreciate that too. And if you want to help out the podcast in a more active way, more directly, if you want to help keep the lights running, help support the stuff I do here please check out our Patreon page, links down below. This show's always going to be ad-free. And, yep, obviously, during all of these strange times, I know not a lot of you have spare cash to go around, but if you like what I do here on the show, if you'd like to show some appreciation, hey, maybe chuck me $1, $2 down the internet a month. It's the price of a cup of coffee, which is what the generic sales pitch you hear off everyone. But hey, folks, I'm not here to emotionally manipulate you. I mean, if I was going to emotionally manipulate you, I would say that this is the last recording I am going to be making until I go back to work in a pub here in the UK. So if you want to keep me out of the COVID quarantine death trap, then hey, maybe throw me a few dollars down a month and I won't need to work there anymore. God, that was pathetic, wasn't it? And now, folks, we're going to move on to part one of my Let It Be slash Get Back discussion. Let's take it away. 
you paying attention to either my grammar or the title of this episode, you'll already know that I'm not going to be doing this duo review on my own. And good thing too, as there is literally twice as much to talk about. My guest today, folks, if you are deep on the inside of the Beatles podcasting world, is someone that you will have likely heard of or have literally heard. He's an incredibly proficient musician. He wrote the theme music for our rival show, Two Legs. And we even guested together on the same episode of Two Legs about a week or two weeks ago. Since that time, we've planned about five or six different podcasts. But, you know, considering how long it's taken me to record and edit Flowers in the Dirt, I thought we'd start off with something nice, quick and easy. Ladies and gentlemen, intersex, non-binaries, queer folk, everyone else, please give it up for the powerful Dylan Seavey. Dylan, welcome to the show. How's it going, my friend? I'm doing great, Sam. Thanks so much for the stellar intro, and uh, thanks for letting me come on the show. No, I've been I've been looking forward to this, man. You know, it's nice to have someone under the age of 55 on the show, if I'm honest. <laughs> Once again, taking shots at Tom Hunyadi without meaning to, but I, I appreciate it. As always, I like to begin these interviews with the most British question ever. Where are you calling from, and what's the weather like? I am calling from Nashville, Tennessee, in the United States of America, and we're beginning a very hot and humid week, which isn't much to the liking of my New England blood, but I'm slowly getting used to it. You might say it's hot as sun, then. Well, it was great talking with you, Sam. Um, <laughs> like to wish you luck on the rest of the show, and um, oh, yeah, if, thanks. If- if the bad puns are what's going to put you off, mate, you may as well. You, you are, you are right. But no, it's, uh, no it's, it's nice to have someone calling from Ringo Country, you know. He'd love that kind of kind of shtick up there. Yeah, if you go to the Country Music Hall of Fame, you can actually see some of the instruments and notes that were used on the Buku's a Blues record, which is really cool. And this is, uh, for the sake of this show, obviously this is where... Paul did Junior's Farm and Sally G and mm. uh, Walking in the Park with Eloise. So, you know, one could say that I have a real connection with them because of this, and I am therefore closer to them than most. No, I, I have no connections to the Beatles, but I certainly <laughs> like to pretend that I do. Don't we all, Dylan? And just speaking of uh, Nashville, specifically the main strip in Nashville, you actually had a bit of your own iconic kind of rooftop-esque concert uh, that you showed me last week. I was wondering if you could explain to my audience how you ripped off the Beatles. Uh, well, as, as much as I have tried to shamelessly rip them off across uh, many avenues in my life, uh, <laughs> one of which is I've always wanted to play on a roof, this, this wasn't really a true rip-off, but between... 2016 and 2019, I played full-time uh, with a musician named Ron Gallo, who also lives here in Nashville, one of my really good friends. We worked with a brilliant local filmmaker here named Joshua Shoemaker, who had this idea in his back pocket for a few years that no other band wanted to risk, where <laughs> we would go down to Broadway, which is the main tourist strip here, and it's it is to Nashville what Bourbon Street is to New Orleans mm. or Beale Street is to Memphis. And the idea was to pull out in the middle of the road and play the song in a bed of a pickup truck. So we mm. went down there on a Saturday night where it's overrun by tourists and bachelorette parties and bro country enthusiasts. 
And we had a crew coordinating the best time for us to, you know, stop everyone trying to cross the street so we could pull out, block traffic. We wouldn't hit any vehicles or people. And of course, you know, we only have one take to do this. You know, it's not like you can make a grand attempt at severely breaking the law and mess it up and say, well, it's, it's fine. We'll, we'll just, you know, take two. We'll do it again. So thankfully, mm-hmm. everything went right. But we, we put all our gear in the back of the truck, me, Ron, and our bandmate, Joe. And we pulled out into the middle of the intersection. We played our minute and a half long song, got it filmed, and then we hauled ass right out of there. Ladies and gents, I'm definitely going to put a link to this in the description. (laughs) Not only because we've started the interview with it, but it's fucking awesome. Like, I'm not being a sycophant here. I mean, all of my best friends are the best musicians ever. But I saw that and was like, damn, that's really good. I mean, the only thing that's missing from the video is you three being arrested. That would have been fantastic. Or maybe (laughs) you could have turned to the camera and gone, Thank you on behalf of the group, and I hope they pass the audition. And then everyone goes, <laughs> like that, yeah. Well, if you watch the video, nothing was added in post-production. You you see lights from a cop car going off, yeah. and those are very real. And so we pull over to the side of the road as soon as it's done. And I called my parents right before this all happened and said, like, Mom, Dad, just so you know, there's a chance I get arrested tonight. May need you to help me post bail. They were totally cool with it. Um, and, you know, we're, if we're calling a spade a spade, you know, we were three white guys. We were never in that much danger of anything crazy bad happening to us. Uh, but the cop really just sounded like a disappointed dad. It was, it was, very, it, it was very much just like, guys. Lads, I'm not angry. I'm just you know, disappointed. You just, you can't do that. <laughs> And I think those are his exact words. And we just nodded our heads and we said, we're very sorry, officer. And we promise we will never do it again. And I like to think that he was impressed and and borderline happy that someone did something interesting down on Broadway for the first time in forever. But it was, uh, it was pretty fun. Definitely made for a great video. And, you know, even to this day, that was almost four years ago now. And if, uh, at shows that I would play with Ron or if, if people know that I used to play with him, one of the first things that they'll say is, were you in that video where you pulled out downtown and in, in front of Margaritaville? I'm like, yep, that was us uh, disrupting anyone who might want to listen to two hours of Jimmy Buffett music while eating a burger <laughs> that's probably overcooked. Folks. Go out and watch it. It's absolutely fantastic. It is a shame, though, that the policeman didn't say, oh, you can't do that. That would have, again, that would have, <laughs> if it, he'd have been on it like, like, like that. Anyway, moving on from your vanity project, I don't want to rub you too much. Like with every other guest on this podcast, I like to gauge people's musical baseline in terms of the Beatles. Where do you stand on the Fab Four? Behind the scenes, I may have prepped Dylan for this, but here we go. Some quick fire questions. Dylan, what's your favorite Beatles song? Go! Oh, wow. I was not expecting this. Today, today um, they probably wouldn't top my definitive list. But for right now, it's either You Never Give Me Your Money or Tomorrow hmm. Never Knows. That's wow. that's where I'm feeling today. Two unique albums there. Yeah, love it. Yeah, I, um, I got a band. I'm from Rhode Island originally, um, which for... 
you Brits or for other people not from New England is not actually an island and it's not a part of New York. It is actually the smallest state in the country. And uh, I have my old band back home that I'm the front man for. And we actually covered the whole Abbey Road medley this past December and learning you never give me your money. I mean, it's always been a top 25, 30 Beatles song for me, but learning it musically and really digging into it just made me appreciate it tenfold more than I already did. And, and I've also during quarantine, me and my best friend back home had been listening to all the albums together and, you know, typing to each other back and forth. And we were listening to Revolver yesterday. And, you know, I've always loved Tomorrow Never Knows, but something about it yesterday just hit me like it never had over the last 20 years. And it's just the heaviest shit. It's, it's, the, it's the coolest. You know, people always say that Ticket to Ride's the preamble to heavy metal, but there's definitely some heavy metal in Tomorrow Never Knows, even if not instrumentally, but in terms of just the the assault of sound on your brain. It's so much to take in, especially for 66 as well. Oh, yeah. And it's great, too, because all four of them are contributing to it. I mean, Paul and Ringo on the rhythm section, I mean, they're they're basically doing a live band loop, and, and that drum beat is so heavy and and all all props to jeff emmerich for the way that he engineered those drums and engineered that album and and same with paul's bass but john's delivery you know george bringing the sitar in paul Mm. helping out with the tape loops it's it truly it's it's heavy metal not just in sound but really in its energy and its attitude it's you know i'm not saying anything that hasn't been said before it just really hit me yesterday um, in particular when your troubles seem so far away right what is your favorite Beatles album <laughs> uh, that one was so bad Sam um, oh. see what I did there um, I'm gonna be boring and say Abbey Road it's it's been that way for a long time but I, I just think that instrumentally Paul George and Ringo are all in the top of their games and even though John doesn't have the heaviest presence on it, the songs that he does bring to it are top notch. You know, the medley is brilliant. The individual songs are incredible. Um, yeah, I, I know it's cliche, but if I'm being honest, I don't think any record by any other musician tops that one for me. Again, this isn't me doing an ageist joke or anything, but just since we are two younger lads, it is the most modern sounding album to our ears. For you know? sure. You know. For sure. Yeah, I was really interested before the remix came out because you you can make an argument as to why the other albums needed to be remixed. And I don't necessarily agree with that, but I understand the argument. Abbey Road, I was really confused because it already sounded so perfect and, and to a degree modern. And there's things about the new remix that I like and things about it that I don't like, but... For me, the original mix is still perfection. What is the most underrated Beatles song? There's quite a few, but right now, I I really love Tell Me What You See. Mm, I think Love it. it love it. Great harmonies from John and Paul. Them singing in unison is, is the greatest sound ever. I, I forget who pointed it out. Uh, I mean, there's obviously a legion of great Beatles historians and podcast hosts, but it really is like a third voice when they sing together. 
And hearing them in unison on the look into these eyes now is it's beautiful. <laughs> I mean, it's flawless melody, great lyrics. I love that electric piano line. And and help in general is an album that I kind of have complicated feelings for, but this is just like a, a little buried treasure tucked away near the end of the album. And everyone talks about I've just seen a face and yesterday. Those are great songs, but this this one's just as good for me. I've always loved this song. Help is just a good jam album in general for anyone of any musical talent. I was with my best friends for a, a post-COVID lockdown jam session. Uh-huh. And we just went through all of Help and all of Rubber Soul and that perfect kind of rock slash folk slash stoner phase where, they, where they're doing it all is it's so fun to play no matter what instrument you're on, no matter what you sing. It's, it's a pick up and play. It's brilliant. Well, yeah, with those records, too, it doesn't matter however many electric guitars or acoustic guitars you have. You're right, those songs kind of live in that in-between, and it's so easy to convey them in almost any way. And, uh, yeah, I actually really love basically that whole second side of Help, uh, Mm. minus Dizzy Miss Lizzy, which I like. but (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, it's a very confusing decision. But, I mean, I also, for underrated... The song right before it, I think You Like Me Too Much, is extremely underrated. I mean, that great lyrics. I mean, so that is, for for people who are listening to everything in chronological order, that's the third George composition that you hear. And it's not the third song that he wrote. There were other ones that didn't make the records. But, you know, uh, what's the lyric? Uh, You've tried before to leave me, but you haven't got the nerve to walk out and make me lonely, which is all that I deserve. You never you need me. Come on. I I mean, like, John John and Paul were writing great lyrics around that time. To me, that lyric is as, as good as everything. So, yeah, I love that one. Great electric piano on that one, too. I've always loved Don't Bother Me. I don't know about you. I've always thought it was quite a decent composition as far, you know, in contrast to what Harrison says about it. I've always liked that song. Yeah, it's it's not my favorite, but... Oh, no, no. I mean, I, I, I wish that my first song was that good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. What is the most underrated Beatles album? Beatles for Sale. Hands down. Beatles for Sale gets knocked far too much and and i understand they were tired when they were making it and in some ways it's a conceptual step back you know because they just Mm -hmm. done their first record of all originals and now they were going back to the whole six cover song thing but some of those covers are really well done and every single original song is great regardless of what the fab four free for all guys say about what you're doing (laughs) um which i love um and i mean I don't, to me, that three song stretch near the end of every little thing, I don't want to spoil the party. And what you're doing is a, a burst of folk rock brilliance. Though, and, and not to mention those open, I mean, how, how do you argue with no reply, I'm a loser and Babies in Black starting? Babies in Black record? is literally the best song of that period for me. It, it, it's, it's, it's so fantastic. good. You know, and, and what's the lead vocal on that song? Uh, but those harmonies are so perfectly intertwined. The, the lead vocal is both of them. It, mm. It's absolutely fantastic. You know, I, I'm not going to say it's in my necessarily top half of Beatles albums, but I feel like 
any of these YouTube videos or podcasts you listen to of everyone ranking the songs nine times out of ten, they they start with Yellow Submarine and then it's Beatles for Sale right after that. And I, I can't understand it for the life of me. I think it's a honestly I I might grab it before help on on some days of the week. I think it's a fantastic record, but. You know, I think, I'm, dude, I'm, I think I'd grab it before Let It Be, the album we're discussing today. Yeah. I really, I really I, would. I, I wouldn't argue with that necessarily. Yeah. They're on a similar level for me. I mean, <laughs> and, and I'm in that very uh, cliche, you know, I, I know that you're supposed to say, well, there is no Beatles song that I dislike, but there, there truly is no song that I actively dislike, and therefore there's no album that I dislike. I love all of them, but... Um, I don't know. I, I, I have a hard time with, with the hatred that Beatles for Sale gets sometimes. Oh, I mean, like, even going to Yellow Submarine, ever since I Am The Egg Pod came out, I've had such a massive respect for March of the Meanies, you know? <laughs> it's fantastic. I love that whole second song. Yeah, I can't help but love it now. <laughs> it's beautiful. Right, don't be biased, but who was your favourite Beatle growing up? <sighs> growing up, Probably Ringo. Um, he's the reason that I played drums, and we also kind of look alike, so I, I gravitated towards him. Um, but overall, I, I've always loved all four of them, and it's difficult to play favorites. But, you know, it's it's tough not to love Ringo. Um, right. As a drummer, can you give me the 411 on this whole, is Ringo a good drummer, a bad drummer, or a drummer in the right place at the right time? What What's your take on that? I have reached a point in my life, I'm approaching the ripe old age of 30 years old, and um, I have approached a point in my life where I have very little use for anyone who tries to make the argument anymore that he wasn't a good drummer. Um, I, I, I will vehemently defend him if I need to, but I've, I just don't even see the need to. Like, if you don't understand it, as a musician, especially, then I, I, I don't really have the time for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ringo, Ringo set the standard for all rock drummers. And, and the thing is, if I'm, if I'm making a list of my favorite drummers of all time or best drummers of all time, you know, I'm going to talk about John Bonham and I'm going to talk about Keith Moon. And could those guys do things that, that Ringo didn't or Ringo couldn't? You know, absolutely. I mean, mm. Ringo probably could never play i don't want to say never but you know a song like good times bad times you know you're not going to hear that out of ringo um but so many things that are commonplace in rock and roll today ringo started that and i I think that is the argument in general for maybe younger people who are inundated with a lot of newer music and then go back to the Beatles and maybe don't get it at first because they're hearing things that they're just used to hearing now in yeah. common pop music or common rock music, um, you know. And so maybe it's the same thing with Ringo for a lot of people. They hear guys like Ginger Baker and Neil Peart and all these guys, and so when they listen to Ringo, they don't really get it. But, you know, it's as simple as, you know, playing a pattern on the kick and snare that mirrors what's going on in the bass line or the main guitar riff mm-hmm. or knowing how to utilize open and closed hi-hats. I mean, 
I want to hold your hand. He's riding on that open hi-hat, making it nice and washy and big, this whole song. And then the song completely switches gear on that bridge as soon as he closes it. You know, I want to hold your hand. Mm -hmm. I want to hold your hand. And when he closes it right up and it, it, it dynamically changes the entire song. So when they finally hit the I can't hide and he's opening it back up and he's doing the fills again, it, it's it's brilliant. It, it's absolutely brilliant. And, you know, I, I don't know. If you as a drummer were sitting down at the kit and your bassist came up to you and said, hey, ma'am, I've got this really cool bass line. And it goes... Doom, 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 doom. No one's going to do what Ringo did at that point. No one's so going to, you know, Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, there's so much to, and, and obviously the thing that everyone loves to point out is that he was a left-hand, left-handed guy playing on a right-handed kit, and he's leading on all the beats with his right hand, but he's leading on all the fills with his left hand, so he's doing things that a lot of guys aren't going to do there. Ringo, I mean, I tell people all the time that if there's anything flashy or quote unquote cool that I can do that I learned it from Bonham or moon, but anything that I do that grooves, I learned from Levon and Ringo. And, you know, I, I, like I said, if you don't see it, then I, I have, if you want to understand it, then I will happily explain it to you. But it's the same for me as anyone who, claims that Meg White was a terrible drummer and Meg White shouldn't have been in the White Stripes and that was all Jack White. And it's like, well, you yeah. well, you just don't know and you don't get it and that's fine, but you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, no, I no. Uh, my Doorbell and Blue Orchid are two of my favourite drum lines ever and it's literally just her going for like three minutes. It's perfect. She's a great drummer. It's appropriate for whatever the band needs at the yeah. time. The yeah. main job of the drummer is to keep time. And and you can say what you want about it, but she's always keeping time. And it always... I've never listened to a White Stripes song and wished that Ginger Baker was behind the kit. Don't fix what isn't broken. And especially when you've got such a virtuoso guitarist like Jack White as well. It, it's a nice contrast to have a, a real raw drummer behind it, you know? Of course. And it's the same with the Beatles, too. I mean... And that's the thing. Like, I love John Bonham. John Bonham might be my favorite drummer of all time. And John Bonham's drumming worked for everything that that band was doing musically. So it fails, or I personally fail to understand why anyone wouldn't think that Ringo does the same thing. Because what these guys did musically fits so well with what Ringo is doing. And that's that's what it is. It's playing to the song. It's playing to the people around you. And no one did that like Ringo. Finally, out of the original five, what's your favorite Beatles film? Um, Either A Hard Day's Night or Yellow Submarine. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, A Hard Day's Night is probably objectively the best film. It's wonderfully written. It's so great for what it is. Uh, Yellow Submarine is... That's the first one I ever saw, so there's a nostalgia factor there that I can't deny, and it's fascinating. I mean, the animation's great. Uh, everything about it, the music, the way it's interpolated, I really love. Um, 
probably between those two. I'll, I'll say Yellow Submarine since I'm sure most everyone else would say A Hard Day's Night. Right, this is going to sound like I'm playing up to my devil's advocate hipster personality, but let, <laughs> let it be the movie that we're going to discuss today has always been my favourite Beatles film because it's the only film that has the Beatles in it. You know, it's the only film that has the real Beatles in, not some sort of press screenwriter's version of what they are. But that's what we're going to talk about today, folks. We're going to get into Let It Be and The Beatles Get Back. So, Dylan, tell me, how long into your Beatles fandom was it before you finally got to watch Let It Be? I got into the Beatles around seven or eight years old. And my guess is that I finally saw Let It Be when I was maybe 12 or 13, so five years in or so. Mm -hmm. And what was your initial reaction when you when you saw it? Were you turned off by how dark and ugly the movie is? Or I think my initial reaction was the same as most people who see it for the first time. Uh, you know, I, I thought it was dreary and almost a little aimless, but it was also fascinating to see them working together, and the music at the end is great, so it was definitely a mixed bag. So, I mean, were you aware of these controversies going in? Were you, like, aware that you might have gone in with a bit of a bias? Or did you kind of watch it with a blank slate? I was probably vaguely aware. You know, mm. I, I, I learned a lot more as I dove farther into my obsession. But by the time I watched it, I definitely didn't know half of what I do now. And even now, <laughs> I still feel like I have a lot to learn. Um I, I don't think I was super influenced by any preconceived notions, but but I probably knew at least a little bit. I mean, are we even allowed to legally say we've watched this film, or do we have to add like apparently, or it's just a joke? You know, I mean, I mean, I, I you know, my lawyer <laughs> say my client is just making a joke for a podcast, Your Honor. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's no available legal way to purchase this film unless you go on bootlegs. However, folks, there is not, I repeat, there is not a really good free rip of this film available on Vimeo.com. There is not. It's not available for free right now. Do not go on Vimeo. Please don't tell MPL because they'll take it down in two months. They will. Well, I'm not going to divulge where I've watched it recently, um, but I, I will just say... If you know, then you know. Now, you can't talk about this film without talking about the album. So let's just quickly talk about the album first. I've already mentioned that I don't rank Let It Be that highly. My friend Chris, it's his favourite album. He absolutely loves Let It Be by the Bug Beatles. Um, mm. I'm not going to ask for a specific rank, but is it high up, middling or lower end of your collection of Beatles albums? For me, it doesn't rank as low as a lot of people would probably tend to rank it. This was actually the second Beatles album that I ever heard after the White Album. And and that was kind of a confusing listen because those two records don't <laughs> particularly sound alike. <laughs> um, and, and I remember, too, I mean, honestly, you could make the argument that I either did myself a lot of favors by having the white album be my first one, or I didn't do myself a lot of favors. And uh, one of the arguments for it not being the best thing was because in my head, you know, in my limited seven or eight year old scope, who music to me at that time was Smash Mouth and the Rugrats movie soundtrack, <laughs> um, the white album was 
the Beatles. That's what the Beatles sound like. And of course, when you know the entirety of their catalog, it is the farthest <laughs> away from, from anything else. So when I put on Let It Be, I, I think it was almost kind of like a like a, a shock, I guess, at first. But then as it went on, it was like, okay, well, I, I recognize that voice. Okay, kind of get. And then a few weeks later, when I'm in the car with my grandma, who's listening to an oldie station, and From Me to You comes on, and she's like, oh, look, it's it's your new favorite band. I'm like, shut up, grandma. No, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's interesting there's kind of a nostalgia factor there again because of that i think there's enough high quality songs on it for it to not warrant a spot at the bottom of my rankings i would probably listen to let it be before with the beatles mm. um maybe maybe even please please me on some days i love please please me um so it's it's not in the top half, but it, it's not in my bottom two or three either. Now, we're going to get onto this. I think conceptually, it's a very confused album. Like, is this the Beatles getting back to their roots or is this them writing a whole bunch of new stuff? And it seems to be hmm. caught between two worlds. And we're, we're going to get on this in the documentary, but I kind of wish it was a complete retro fit album. You know, it's all one after 909s and from me to use that kind of thing. I know that Lennon would have no interest in that whatsoever. <laughs> that, that'll be the least cool thing. And Harris was like, I can't do slide guitar on the one after 909. So I don't really want to do it. <laughs> but conceptually, that would just be a lot more interesting. And I don't think there's anything on this album that screams it needed to be on Let It Be. The track listing is quite scattershot in that sense. I mean, the same goes for Let It Be Naked. They changed the track list in there. It didn't have any major effect on how I approached any of the material. I mean, did you like Let It Be Naked when that came out? Yeah, I did. I, and I still like Let It Be Naked. It probably has my favorite versions of Across the Universe and Long and Winding Road. And it's, it's nice to hear Don't Let Me Down as a part of it, even if it's not the best version of that song, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I, I, I still go for the original album over everything else. I have to be honest and say it's been years since I listened to the Glenn Johns version of the record, so I, I should abstain from making comment on that. But I understand what you're saying. It is kind of difficult because... They just were so not on the same page about things that conceptually, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, it, 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 is a, it is kind of a mess. And, you know, it's um, I had this conversation with my dad once because you you can argue that the project itself is a failure and not necessarily in the sense that it's bad or that it, it, it didn't turn into something worthwhile or something new and good, but it's in the same way. I don't know if you're a big fan of The Who at all, but you could make the same argument that The Who's next album is also a failure because that was supposed to be this big, sprawling project called right. Lifehouse that Townsend had planned out. Um, so it's like, if you're going to make a failure of a record, Who's Next is about as good as you're going to get. Uh, but yeah, it's you're right. It's part retro one after 909 get back these old school rock and roll songs mixed with 
where Paul is going with his more grandiose songwriting with Let It Be and Long and Winding Road. And then you have George with his compositions that as much I really like both of his songs on this record, but you know that he's not even necessarily holding back his better stuff, but his better stuff isn't even getting a sniff from these guys. So it is, it is a hodgepodge. And as far as what I might've wanted it to be, it's tough to say because I think what I would have wanted would be for these guys to truly come to a conclusion about what they wanted. And I don't think that that was possible at that time, given where they were all at personally. Oh, you just wish that someone would sit them down and say, look, you twats, talk about your emotions. <laughs> be vulnerable, cry in front of yeah. each other and sort well, it out. Yeah, and sort and, it and out. we'll get into this, obviously, as we discuss the film. You know, I won't. I won't go too much into it right now, but even with the infamous Paul and George spat in the film, when you look at that in context, knowing what we know now, years later, I really understand both sides of it. Mm -hmm. And and that's the thing, you know, people who like to take sides, and, and I think I'm also at a point in my fandom at a point in my life where I, I don't like to take sides in the I'm not a John guy I'm not a Paul guy I'm not a George guy I think that they all were brilliant in their own ways and they were all troubled in their own ways and when you look at it at the time of course Paul was being domineering but he someone had to do it and well, come on produce it, you know yes yeah. and, and you know did he go about it the right way not always, but I, but I get it. And, and I get why George was where he was. And I get why John was where he was. I mean, John, John was an addict and, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna blame someone for that. I wish it didn't happen. And that's a whole nother conversation for another time, but I'm not going to yell at someone deep in the throes of addiction for not doing the right thing. You know, I just want them to get help. And uh, so just given where they were all at, I think it really was sort of doomed from the start, especially when you take into account where George was at, because George's inability to just sit back and be the junior partner, I think, plays such a huge part in all of this. And... For as much as you say maybe John wouldn't have been interested in that old school retro project, I definitely think George would have pushed back on that far more. Because, I mean, John was a rock and roller. I mean, his first live set, aside from the Dirty Mac, was all rock and roll stuff. Live Peace in Toronto. He's doing Dizzy Miss Lizzie and Blue Suede Shoes. John liked that. I bet he could have been convinced to do that. But George was writing... You know, the, the songs with too many chords, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that would have been a lot more difficult for him. Well, I mean, John, you're not the lead guitarist, so shut up. Oh, that, that comment <laughs> always annoys back. me. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I get it. And except on Taxman and God knows how many other songs secretly, you know what I mean? Oh. I mean, I'm totally prepared to find out that Paul did the solo on While My Guitar Gently Weeps and Clapton's been keeping his mouth shut the whole time, you know? 
Well, I, I think that would be, I think they would have maybe tried to <laughs> trot that little fun fact out a couple of years ago when we hit the 50th anniversary to drum up more uh, press. But who knows? Maybe they need something for the 75th anniversary. Right. Let's get on to the documentary now, because this, this is going to be the lion's share of this conversation, folks. And there is a lot to talk about here. There have been so many podcasts on Let It Be and The Beatles Get Back lately, but I want to do a real play-by-play, moment-by-moment. And Dylan, come back with this. I've written every fucking scene that's in this movie in chronological order. <laughs> and you know what? I had so much fun doing it. I guess... The part that I love about this film is that it turns every Beatles fan into this clinical psychologist and behavioral <laughs> analyst, and you know, everything's Freudian and Kafka esque. And it's like, oh, right, well, actually, I think John's feeling this, and Paul actually means this, and it's all bullshit. We don't know what's going on. You can just take it all at face value and interpret it how Michael Lindsay Hogg and the editors present it to you. Let's just talk about the style of the film first before the actual content. This is described as a fly-on-the-wall type documentary. That's that's the quote you hear all the time, fly-on-the-wall, fly-on-the-wall. But is that accurate? Because if it's fly-on-the-wall, that means silent observer and Michael Lindsay Hogg was constantly on camera, constantly talking to the lads, coming up with ideas. He may have even come up with the rooftop concert idea on his own. So is it even an accurate way to describe the movie? I think it's partly true, if not fully. You know, there's there's definitely some premeditated conversations and agendas here. You know, I, I think that it's obviously one of the more common issues that people have with it. But I feel like for all of the things that he left out or could have put in, there's enough in there, I think, to get away with it being described that way. I mean, especially with the argument and some of the other more uh, damning moments, I guess. Oh, I just wish Lindsay Hogg had the balls to write down everything that he cut out of that two or three hour cut. Like, <laughs> come on, how many racial slurs did Paul throw at Yoko? Come on, let's be honest now. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would go as far to say that it's a whitewash, but he definitely chose to not include some material that would have legitimized the style that he was going for, among other things. And and But some of that is coming from the Beatles. Some of that's coming from Alan Klein. So, um, you know, it, it. I guess it does become... I am not nearly versed enough in Lindsey Hogg's work. I, I haven't read too many interviews with him, so... Uh, I, I can't fully speak to this, but I imagine that some of it's on him and some of it is on the outside sources as well. Yeah, you know, I don't think Mr. Hogg made a pig's ear of it. Uh, that's my only bad pun for the moment. Uh, what the only one? OK. <laughs> like, one thing that stood out to me when I watched this was like, there's no narration. There's no talking heads. There's nothing like, you know, when like it cuts to McCartney in Living in the, in the Material World, you know, I like it as the four sides of a square, you know, like there's none of that. And that makes it really ambiguous. Would would you prefer narration from maybe all four of the Beatles or from Lindsay Hogg himself? Or do you like how flat it is? Um, I, I don't necessarily mind it, but I agree that it doesn't do wonders for the narrative. You know, they make it known 
when the band is going into Apple, but we're never given any indication that they were ever in Twickenham, that, that they were ever in this different yeah. place, you know, and, yeah. and um, you know, I've never taken the time to listen to the God knows how many hours of footage from the Nagra reels. Uh, that's a project that I would love to embark on at a later date, but, but knowing enough about the general timeline, it, it makes it all the more confusing to watch now and realize that they're not painting a complete picture of what was going down. Um, I, I don't mind that there's no cutaways like and whatnot, because uh, I think that the conversations that we hear from them act in their own way as talking heads. Um, but so I can't say that's a major gripe, um, but it, it does play into that lack of narration, I would say. Yeah, at least we don't get Harrison Ford's narration from Blade Runner, you know, just... And here we are, well, quick enough, you, and then... Uh, you say, unfortunately, but you don't speak for everyone. Look, okay, anyone who prefers the theatrical cut of Blade Runner, unsubscribe from this podcast. You're not welcome <laughs> here. You're not welcome. And that uh, is a hard stance, folks. I'll die on that hill. I don't give a fuck. I really don't... <laughs> Now, something that a lot of people don't consider with documentaries, and I hate to burst the bubble for you folks, the primary focus is entertainment, not truth, not reality. So, Dylan, is this document entertaining? Not in the classic sense or the common definition of the word. I think it's interesting and it's an important historical document regardless of how realistic it is or how accurate it is and the music is entertaining i wouldn't say that the film overall is overly entertaining and that's why they're remaking it dylan that's why they're remaking (laughs) it because you cannot make a trailer out of the 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 sentence you just said then well it's not conventionally entertaining put that on the poster (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) Well, I was really, really gunning for my own promotional quote there, so that's unfortunate that I totally botched that. Yeah, I mean, I find it fun as a Beatle fan, but they are not yes. making this new film specifically just for Beatles fans. They they want the crowd who thought yesterday was a good rom-com to come and see this film as well. Or Yeah, even that, or, but even maybe not huge Beatles fans still get a kick out of Help or Hard Day's Night or Yellow Submarine. Those are entertaining films, good films in their own rights. You don't need to be a massive fan. I feel like in order to fully appreciate or understand Let It Be, it takes a level of understanding that you're not going to get with most casual fans. And you can't blame casual fans because, you know, not... Damn you, casual fans! Not everyone is going to be a super fan of every band all the time. Some people are going to be really content with having Sgt. Pepper and Abbey Road and one in their collections. And and regardless of how much we don't think that's fine, it is. So if that person is mildly interested enough to see a film, yeah, I I would not recommend Let It Be because they're not going to get it and they're not going to be entertained. So... I guess you're right. I guess it is why they're redoing it. You're far too reasonable for this podcast, Dylan. You really are. (laughs) 
Sorry. Now, conspiracy number one. Could the whole downer first 50 minutes of this film purely be a directorial or editorial decision by Lindsay Hogg or other people in the production crew to make the ending rooftop concert feel all the more triumphant because they weren't going to break up at this point. It was just the rooftop concert. There was no proof that this was the last thing that the Beatles were ever going to do live in front of people. So maybe, you know, Lindsay Hogg was just like, right, if I just put nice stuff at the front, it's going to seem a little vacuous at the end. But if I make it seem like it was a bit of a struggle, you know, Sam and Frodo had to fight a few walks to get to Mordor, then destroying the rings going to be all the more impactful. Um, expect lots of Lord of the Rings references. We're going to be talking about Peter Jackson. But, you know, <laughs> do you think it was an intentional low point, high point contrast? I think in order for that conspiracy to have legs, we need to imply or agree that the concert actually does feel triumphant because I, I'm not saying that the concert isn't good. I love it, mm -hmm. but the film does such a poor job of truly letting you know why they're doing it. What conversations, <laughs> yeah. what conversations took place to lead to it. I would argue that for however good the concert is, it, it doesn't feel triumphant in the context of the film as much as it just feels like another random event which is unfortunate because the concert was pretty important when you take into consideration everything that happened leading up to it um, but I think your your conspiracy hinges on that fact does it actually feel triumphant because mm -hmm. when you take everything out of context it's just sort of like, oh, okay, well, they're doing this now. And and they're clearly playing better. So maybe that makes it feel triumphant. But I don't know. I never thought of it in that particular way. Um, I, I think okay. of it that way more when I think of what actually happened, which the film doesn't show you. You know what, folks? Just a brief aside... I've got the utmost respect for Michael Lindsay Hogg. He was dealt a shit show. He's like Obama inheriting the Bush economy. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, you know, what can he do with it, really? Like, they were changing what the concept of the film was daily, almost. They were telling you what he couldn't and couldn't use daily. And it's 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 just like he's, he's panicked and cobbled together what he could. And no one was ever going to like the outcome anyway. So I... Any negatives I, I'm not going to speak if you did, but any negatives that I say on this episode, it's not going to be, I'm not blaming Lindsay Hogg or anything like that. He, it was it was a tough gig. And the fact that it's as good as it is already is a miracle <laughs> in itself. I am fully in agreement with you there. One thing I really like about this film, though, is that it lets us know from the outset that it's not going to be like any other Beatles film it begins quietly with a couple of footsteps and it's these stage hands and assistants like gathering all the equipment. One of them might be Mal Evans. And it, it's just saying to the audience, this is a documentary. This is going to be boring and flat, but also there's an element of artifice and putting on a show. So it's reality, but not reality. And I know Ken Michaels is hitting his head off the wall thinking, Sam, you're thinking about it too much. But I... <laughs> I do get to put on my film degree hat here. I don't have a music degree. I've got a film one, so I I, I can justify my over my overthinking here. 
I guess, like, I mentioned, this is quite an ugly film, but that's one of my draws. I like that it's kind of... Look, folks, obviously I'm aware that film shot in 1969 and 70 looks crap and grainy anyway, but that's part of the charm to me. Like, anyone who's seen 28 Days Later knows the benefit of having a really bad camera to create an atmosphere. And I'm not sure if I want to see Billy Preston in HD. I'm not sure if I want to see Yoko sat on an amp in HD. You know, part of what I enjoy is, is it's physically so retro and grimy. Like, it looks like it's... Every time I watch it, it looks like it's degraded from the last time I watched it. And that's part of the joy for me. Um, conspiracy number two, Dylan. Is this a McCartney hatchet job? Um, well, there, <laughs> there's okay, a I, lot I, I, of evidence. You know what? I want, I want a short answer and then your long answer. Go. Short answer. Not exactly. Okay. Long answer. <laughs> um, I think that if, you know, going back to what you just said about the hand that Michael Lindsay Hogg was dealt, he was dealt a lot of McCartney feeling like he had to take charge. And McCartney was the one who wanted to be there the most. Mm-hmm. And so I don't necessarily think it was a ploy by McCartney, which is why I say not exactly, but there's a lot in here that certainly lends credence to the people claiming that there's a, not even necessarily a pro-Paul narrative, but just a a Paul centric mm-hmm. narrative happening here. So I, I get why it, people say that, and I I I understand it, but I I don't think that that was necessarily his decision. As as aware as he was that the cameras mm-hmm. were on him. Well, like the counter arguments that as well. John didn't fucking bring anything to the sessions. He he brought half yeah. of. I've got a feeling he brought bits of dig it that Paul helped finish off. He's got one after 909 and across the universe, two songs from earlier sessions. And yeah, that would explain why it's a Paul centric narrative. But then the counter to that counter is George is bringing half of all things must pass to these sessions. And it's just not getting a fucking uh, word, word in edgeways at all. Like the fact that we hear Maxwell's silver hammer and octopus's garden, but not all things must pass. And my sweet Lord, it's so indicative of like, God, they really should have put more George and Ringo in this thing. And well, I I think that makes sense though. And and apologies for cutting you off, but you should be used to it. But um, (laughs) I I think that it makes sense. um, Knowing that, George was going to be working on this record. The sessions for All Things Must Pass didn't start until May, which is when I know this film came out, but he was clearly going to be moving in that direction. And, you know, a smarter Beatles historian out there might be able to tell me if I'm right or wrong on this, but I assumed to some degree that maybe a conversation was had, George, to the filmmakers like hey you know he already didn't 
he he said he would play on the rooftop, but he wasn't going to play any of his songs out there. So like, hey, look, you can put out the movie, but if you're going to show my songs, show the ones that are going to be on the album. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was a directive from George. And mm. may, maybe that's been confirmed, whether that's true or not. Um, I'm sure that people will email you uh, to tell you, which you can then tell me. But um, <laughs> so I... So I get what you're saying, um, and I think that's going to be one of the benefits of the newer film. I, I imagine they will go a lot more into that. The other big controversy is Yoko, or the lack of Yoko, should I say. And you know what? When I watched it this time around in preparation for this episode, I did notice, I was like, shit, she was there every day, and you see her about four times throughout the entire film and it feels like there was some terribly cynical focus group going right everyone press the green button when you like something on screen and press the red button when you don't like what's on screen and someone's pressing green for mr speedo you know but obviously whenever yoko's on screen eh, 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 red and i cannot help but side with john here like yoko whether you like it or not, folks, she's a part of the Beatles story at this time. Like, wouldn't it have been great, for better or worse, to see her on a little microphone, you know? Some of that actually appearing in the movie. Like, the fact that they don't show her lends more credence to the fact that she's not this negative influence. And I think if they'd have shown it as it was, we would be able to make up our own minds. But the fact that they hid it and cut her out the movie almost entirely. A, it's not fair, but B, it doesn't allow us to come to real conclusions about Yoko at all. And again, just as you said with George's songs, I want to see a lot more Yoko in the new film and I want to see how it actually went down. Well, yeah, and, you know, her initial introduction in the movie, I, I always felt, because a lot of the shots of her show her with sort of a stoic facial expression... It kind of helps play into, that's the nicest way I could say it. Um, it kind of plays into the stereotypes that, that people held at the time. A lot of people still think about today in terms of Yoko broke up the band or, or Paul. She sat on an amp, Dylan. She sat on an amp. And, and, and that really was the turning point. Um, but you know, anyone who wants to believe those things, that Yoko broke up the band or Paul broke up the band, they have their ammunition within the first five to ten minutes of this film. But with, with the way that those people are portrayed, and even with the lack of Yoko being shown, I'm interested, because I agree with you, I think that Yoko should be shown more. I think almost everyone other than Paul should be shown more in the new cut of the film, I don't necessarily know. It's going to be up to really the filmmakers to portray things as they happened, because if it's not done correctly, if they show more Yoko, people are going to walk away from it thinking the same exact thing. Like, Oh my God, she broke up the band. And, you know, my feelings on Yoko are mixed and far too complicated and unformulated to be worth really digging <laughs> into right now. But her 
effect on the band. I'm not talking about on John, because that is a entire differently conversation. But her presence affected that band negatively because of George's feelings towards her, mm. uh, Paul's occasional feelings towards her. So it's going to be interesting if they show more Yoko in the new cut of the film, how that really paints the picture, I guess. Um, so, yeah. I, I'm, Come on. I'm we really all want to see the jam session after George left with Yoko on oh, vocals. Uh, Come I on. Who doesn't want to see that? I, I, I think it would be borderline irresponsible to not show it. Uh, you know, and I think there's a, th- and we'll again talk more about this later, but there's a lot of things I, I think they need to really dig into. I, I think probably a lot of people listening to your show also listen to something about the Beatles and, um, you know, Robert Rodriguez just did a great two part series talking about all the things that he wanted to see. And shut I think up, most- Dylan, shut the fuck up. What are you doing to me, bro? It is. There are no other is, podcasts out there, folks. Uh, Ken Michaels leaps. doesn't host one. <laughs> it is leaps and bounds worse than this show. Um, you know, just borderline uh, offensive how unresearched and uninformed <laughs> it is. Uh, <laughs> no, on, on, honestly, Dylan, as a little aside, I can't wait till I write a Beatles book and I get to put a bing every time I mention it in my show. That is, <laughs> this is no, I, I mean, we. The, the show is great. There are many great shows out there, regardless of if Sam's is the best podcast ever recorded. <laughs> um, but but if you go but if you go back, you know he hits on a lot of these great points, and and I think yeah. it would be irresponsible for them to not show more Yoko. And um, yeah, but I getting back to this original cut, I I agree. I I think that not showing her even to the degree that they do show her is, is harmful to some degree to the public image, but it's, it's not accurate. It, it's not an accurate representation of what was going on. There's only one member of the fab four slash five we haven't mentioned, and that's Ringo. And I can't help but feel that a, since there's no Ringo lead vocal tune on this album and B since the focus of the documentary is on the songwriting process that, it's inherently skewed against Ringo as a personality. Like, if it was just them rehearsing old numbers, then it would be this 25, 25, 25, 25% split. But as we have it, you barely get any fucking Ringo in this movie, and it was (laughs) stark to me when I just watched it. Yeah, I think everyone always wants more Ringo, uh, because his... His personality is so great, and when he does get screen time, he usually steals the show. We don't really get that much for George and John, um, but this this film could have benefited from more Ringo. Uh, but you may be right in the fact that it just didn't provide as many opportunities for him, although he did have Taking a Trip to Carolina, Little Bit, which showed up on the Fly on the Wall disc for Let It Be Naked. And mm. um, they could have showed that, I think, in addition to Octopus's Garden. Back to the film itself. Let's start getting into the content, because after after we meet all the Beatles and George shocks himself on his little microphone, <laughs> which, after, after 
doing some research. Apparently, people would die on stage in the 60s and 70s if there was water and mics not correctly wired. It was a big issue. So when Paul turns to the camera and says, if you kill this lad, we'll have you, he's not, he's not totally being disingenuous <laughs> there. Like it, it was a real threat. Um, now... One thing that was interesting about the first part of the film, it chucks you in the deep end, doesn't it? There's no, like, this is let it be. Here is the concept. This is what's going on. Let's catch you. You know, like when fucking Lord of the Rings starts and you have Galadriel giving you 20 minutes of exposition as to what the fuck is going on. You don't get any of that here. It just cuts to the Beatles singing. It doesn't tell you why they're singing or what's coming up. And... That's kind of exciting as much as it is confusing, I guess. Uh, then we leap straight into the up-tempo version of Two of Us, which, as far as I'm concerned, is the version they should have used on the final album. Uh, <laughs> and e even with all the you know, silly vocals that, that, that they do on that, even with Lennon forgetting all of his lyrics, which could be the subtitle for this movie, Let It Be, Lennon Can't Remember His Lyrics, because that is throughout this whole documentary. I love that from him. That's okay. okay. I, I feel like the right version of the song made the record, personally, but it's great to see them sharing a mic and having fun, and it's a nice reminder of what their relationship used to be and perhaps could have still been under different circumstances. 100%. Then we get a little teaser of I've Got a Feeling. There's a little snippet of Paul doing Oh Darling, which is a lot more granny. Like it's Oh <laughs> Darling. Dun, 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 dun. You know, it, it's it's not like that. Bow! Bow! Abby wrote perfection. And the best part of I've Got a Feeling is when he's, you know, they're they're sort of talking about it and he's you know, talking about what he wants to hear out of the guitar, and he switches from his speaking voice right into the howling vocal on all these years I've been wandering around. And the, the control and power that he had over his voice at that time is is just like, it's unlike anything else. It's, it, it's truly it really incredible. Is. Like, how the fuck does he do that? <laughs> it makes no <laughs> Like, he just, he, sorry, he just launches into it. Uh, then we get finally a bit of talking. Uh, Paul, for a couple of seconds, talks about the origins of one after the other, you know, and he kind of mentions them getting back to their roots, pun intended, remaking older numbers. Um, again, talking about like Ringo and how it's kind of skewed against him. If they did just do the kind of bringing back old Lennon McCartney classics, that would be another very anti George prospect because. Fucking hell, he didn't work back then. He wasn't allowed to. Um, after this, though, we come on to, as you mentioned, the iconic George versus Paul fight, where they basically, you know, they're fighting with swords. It's it's the most violent thing. You're, oh, no way. It's just two guys kind of calmly talking about a song composition. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've, I've kind of given away my thoughts there. Is this that telling, or is it a bit overemphasised? Um, I don't know if it's overemphasized because it's obviously something that George had harbored for a while and that manifested in his solo career with Isn't It a Pity and even Real Love, you know, because he does the call and response with John's vocal in that song. Mm -hmm. You know, this, what they're actually talking about in this moment 
is a very real gripe that he had. And I understand why he felt the way he felt. But like I said earlier, I also understand why Paul felt the way that he did. And I think it's another reason why this scene gets talked about so much, because it's not really a black and white matter. They both had understandable motives and points to be made. Uh, it, it's just unfortunate that there aren't many other scenes that match that same amount of tension because it's the only sticking point that a lot of fans have for thinking that this was such an awful time. You know, there's so much more to all of it. And when it's presented so out of context, it's tough to totally wrap your head around it in the moment. So I don't know how overemphasized it is. I just think that it's sort of the only bone that we're really thrown to think like, hey, look how terrible this was. Look, they were all fighting and they all hated each other. It makes you wonder what they cut, though, if that's the nicest thing they were allowed to show. Like, <laughs> you know, is there, is, is there a sequence where, you know, Lennon runs at McCartney with a katana? Who knows? We'll have, to, we'll, <laughs> we'll have to wait till Jackson's one comes out. But what was telling for me, Dylan, was the fact that it cuts to immediately a discussion on how John <laughs> wants them to properly plus... And they're saying, like, oh, no, it's going to be this chord, or it's going to be D-sharp or a D-flat. And it's the same kind of... Com it's not got the same bitterness, but it's still a discussion of two artists discussing how a song should or should not be played. It's the songwriting process. Some of it is sticky and awkward. Some of it's more natural. And no one ever talks about this scene, or even the fact that it follows a scene of previous songwriting discussion. And that... That kind of gets him a craw a little bit. I'm like, come on, come on. They're, they're, they're not at his throat, are they? Come on. It's not a great transition, especially because of the lack of narrative that we touched on. There's no way to know where we are or what just happened. It, it is painted in this picture of like, okay, they're arguing, and now all of a sudden, yeah, we're we're into this thing. So it, it is unfortunate because I, I think the Across the Universe scene is actually a pretty nice scene. It would be nice to have more of a conclusion to what had previously happened and more of a lead-in. This is where a stronger lack of narrative, whether that was used with actual narration or just better editing, mm. uh, definitely would have helped. You know what? They totally should have... I, I know it would have spoiled the... 85 Paul McCartney music videos we get at the end of this movie, but if they'd have gone from that <laughs> spat to George recording the master track for the solo for Let It Be, what a contrast mm. that would be, and that would give some sort of re resolution to it, because you forget about that spat by the time we get to the rendition of Let It Be, because we get two of us done properly before then, and it's kind of wiped from your mind by then, you know, that yeah. you are right, and we, we, we haven't even touched on the time jumps in this movie. It's like fucking Memento watching this. It's all over the place. Uh, no, I mean, mine was not recorded before the rooftop concert. Lindsay Hogg, you lying bastard. That is not how it, that is not how it went down. But that's how they'd have you believe it, you know? Um, yeah. It's, it's so all over the place. Maybe Jackson's going to try and rectify that, or maybe he'll just have this common sense as a director to say, note, this is not all in chronological order. These are the right notes, but I'm not playing them in the right order. 
that's a very British joke, Dylan. Do not do not worry. That's a my simple American mind was able to uh, wrap my head around it, but I appreciate it. <laughs> if anyone in America knows who Morecambe and Wise is, email in at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Um, I'm actually quite surprised, though, didn't that they even rehearsed across the universe? I would have thought they would have just used the charity single they would have used years ago, but no. Lennon actually does a bunch of re-recordings of it, different versions of a rockier version, slower versions, changing the key, changing, changing the chords. Yeah. And again, well, like you I, touched... I, I'd love more of that. Beatles reinterpreting older songs and changing them in that kind of classic Bowie, Dylan, you're not going to fucking get the album version kind of way, you know? Well, yeah, but like, like you touched on before, John just didn't have a lot of new finished material if you look back at the day-by-day day song lists, it's mostly Don't Let Me Down from him. That's that's really one of, if not the only, new original he has. But since this had a limited release of sorts on, on the Wildlife record, uh, I guess he probably just thought it was an easy one for him to pull out and get away with, probably because just a lot of people didn't know it as well as the other ones at the time. I wonder if there were Beatles fans going, they already played the one after 909 seven years ago. How dare they? I'm sure that Pete Shotton was really angered by that when he saw it in the theater. <laughs> then, pressing on, we get a little snippet of Digger Pony before we cut to, do you call this song Susie Parker or Susie's Parlor? I forget which is the real one. Uh, I, I could be wrong. I think it is copyrighted as Susie's Parlor, but it's... I call it Susie Parker. It's That's Susie what Paul Parker, calls so. it, almost like obnoxiously. You know, you know what I mean? Like, whenever Lenny goes Parlor, he goes, Parker! <laughs> I love it. I, I think Susie Parker is so much fun, and it's it's great to see them all actually having fun. And, and this is kind of what you were talking about, how it would have been a nice contrast to see Paul and George having the spat followed by George ripping a lead guitar solo. This is a nice contrast. They're running through Digapony. It's not energetic. It's not working. It's not there. They all got a faster and, one. Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. got a faster one. And right into this extremely spirited, funny song. Uh, I, I think that's definitely one of the better editorial directorial decisions right there 100% I totally agree with you there but like you know in Lennon's head he's like ah oh, this song is as good as what's the new Mary Jane no John it's not what's the new Mary Jane is nowhere near as good as this like please <laughs> don't make the Beatles record it what's the same Mary Jane the same at the party oh whenever people say sounds that, like you, sounds like you really love that one yeah it oh like, I know granny music's rubbish, but I love it. There is no one who loves What's the New Mary Jane other than in a totally ironic fashion. Come on. Uh, well, I think you need to listen to more Fab Four Free For All. Again, not trying to plug other podcasts on your show, but... Uh, also, I, there's, there I is do... Talk More Talk, BC the Beatles. <laughs> uh, I've got a Beatles podcast. Let's talk about the Beatles. There's loads. There's absolutely fucking loads, folks. And that's why I went straight to Paul McCartney and then, bam, I found two legs and everything else. You know what? Well done, Anthony Rotuno, for being the only one clever enough to do a Lennon podcast. <laughs> that's all well, I can say, really. 
Um, well, pressing wait on. Until my Ringo podcast. Takes no, you're not doing one. No one's doing one. <laughs> there, there's going to be a podcast on my life before a Ringo podcast. There really is. <laughs> just, just. Pressing on though, we get a little adorable scene here. Uh, one of my favourite scenes, actually. Speaking of, I mean mine, and it's George just going. I don't care if you want to use it or you put it in the room. It's, it's called I'll Be Mine. And just him singing it, kind of not really putting much effort into the book, just kind of goes, all through the day. It's one of my favourite parts of the movie. It really is. It's adorable. And, you know, it is a very late addition to the album. Uh, I mean, could you imagine if Let It Be just had For You Blue and Old Brown Shoe on it? <laughs> uh I can imagine it with For You, Blue, and All Things Must Pass. I think that Old old Brown Shoe is tough to consider. That doesn't feel like a particularly fitting song for this record. But I'm, I'm really glad that they both put this in the film and put it on the record. Um, I think leading up to um, when Billy Preston eventually makes his appearance, the version of... George, Paul, and Ringo running through this is far and away the best studio run through of any of the original songs that they're doing. And and interestingly, you know, John is is waltzing around with Yoko there, and the band sounds so good, and that kind of speaks, I think, to the fact that John really wasn't playing much of a part in George's songs around this time. I mean, I think he was mm-hmm. on While My Guitar Gently Weeps and none of the other ones on the White Album. He, he, you know, he was he was on piano on something, which is mostly cut from Abbey Road. So it's interesting that they, they cut it down to these three guys. And I'm, I'm not saying it's because John wasn't there. It's just worth pointing out, I think, that the three of them sound really damn good they sound put together which is a lot more than we can say for other performances in this movie um yeah i i I love that whole scene oh just watching you know what props to john and yoko they waltz a good fucking waltz they really go for it (laughs) i can't do that i have i have begged i have begged every partner i've ever had to learn the waltz and it's just never happened and watch. well, the next time I make it over to the UK, you and I will <laughs> put on some uh, we'll put on some Hank Williams and we'll do some two steps. We'll do some waltzes. It'll be great. Of, of course, I've mentioned this on the on the podcast before, but John's the guy who said we don't do fucking waltzes in this band. And there he is. He's waltzing, you know, <laughs> five years after he wrote Babies in Black, which is a waltz. <laughs> Um, John Lennon, hypocrite, never uh, write in Anthony. Uh, I'm sure you can chime in on that one. (laughs) Then we go from one George song to another, which is A, unexpectedly fantastic. Like, thank God, after 20 minutes of John and Paul, we get another George song. He gets his own little solo spot. Maybe, as you mentioned earlier, that could have been mandated. Like, look, I'm not going to be in this (laughs) um, if you're just going to fucking shaft me. Like, at least kiss me after if you're going to fuck me. That 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 kind of thing, and I never realised how much I liked "For You Blue" until the other day. And mm. I picked I picked up my guitar, I put my capo on the fifth fret, plucked A seven. It's "For You Blue." It's such an easy song to play. It's all seventh chords, and it's it's so good. But what I didn't realise was John's on slide guitar. What John's on the slide guitar. <laughs> 
And we all know Paul would throw John a solo to keep him interested in the song, or he'd help John with one of his songs to keep him interested in the sessions. I think Harrison went, look, if I give John the slide, he might actually stay in the studio. I don't think that's unreasonable to assume. I think it's actually quite likely. Look, Yoko, have you ever seen one of these? Yeah, and, and you hit on a good point, too, in the sense that that ends up becoming George's signature instrument. And it's John, it's John playing it on his own song. Dude, I've been saying for years, the Beatles' 1971 album would have gone, would have started with... Oh, oh God, it's John. I feel so idiotic now, you know. Oh, (laughs) not the first time I've got something wrong on this show. I didn't know who Mary Hopkin was uh, at the start of of this podcast. And I thought Goodbye was a B-side that never got used. So I've been proven to be wrong before. Uh, Then we get John's quip. I did a pygmy by Charles Hawtrey on the deaf age. (laughs) He's one who always gets our oats. And you know what? There must have been at least three Beatles fans back in the day that would have gone, <laughs> uh, did you know that that was actually in the film Let It Be first? I don't, uh, I don't know if you know that, but I saw it and I know that. Uh, I like all the little <laughs> cuts that Phil Spector threw in to feel clever. Um, oh, yeah, I know. For me, as, as a fan of that song and a fan of the album, it was so cool to watch it and see that, you know, in hindsight, I mean that I completely agree, and even uh, and we'll touch on this in a second. But when they get to dig it, you know, hearing that that one little phrase of vocal where you're like, like a rolling vocal. stone, yeah, yeah, you're like, that's the vocal on the album, uh, you know, and it's and it's the same thing as when you hear uh, that take of Revolution One for the first time, where you realize he's doing the Revolution Nine vocals. It's yeah, you know, there's when you really get into the fandom and and the songs and the history and everything like that the the easter eggs that await you are they're just so gratifying and it's it's one of the the best parts about truly being a fan the best easter egg has to be she loves you at the end of all you need is love that has yeah. to be one <laughs> that blew I me agree. away when i first heard that it blew me away when I first heard the backwards vocal in Rain and realizing it was just the lyrics being put backwards. <laughs> oh, no, I'll I tell you what, going back to uh, Tomorrow Never, Never, Never Knows, I don't know which podcast it was, but they took that, they took the and they turned it into all laughing, you're like, oh. I'm never going to hear that the same way now. I'm never going to hear that the same way.